Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome back to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, your host. As of yet, another week and another show in the bank. Guys, what's happening? How you doing? How's your life? How's your wife? How is everything in general? Uh, not much to talk about uh, at the top of this show, like I sort of talked about uh, during the prequel episode this month of May is going to be a lot focused on the uh, the development of the space program in the United States in particular. Now, of course, during these episodes, we are going to mention other uh, nations and their work on space in parallel to the United States, and in one in particular being Russia, wherein the space race uh, uh, lied, the opponent of the United States mainly, during the space race was, of course, Russia, and I say Russia as, you know, a modern term now. At the time, it was the USSR or the Soviet Union in competition with the United States in terms of doing stuff in space, and it was mostly born of born of a missile race and nuclear arms and this and that and the other thing, but we'll get into all of that throughout the next two to three weeks as we do our our show on the space race. And this week's episode, the first of the three, is going to be about Project Mercury. Project Mercury is the first of the American uh, enterprise, you know, of getting men into space. Now, of course, there were you know, other things going on space-wise. Uh, the United States was launching plenty um, after this point of, of unmanned, you know, satellites and things like that that would go up into orbit. Um, but the biggest thing with the United States and the space race and just it, it, all that stuff in general during the nineteen, the late 1950s and early 1960s and beyond was the ability to get an actual person up into space, and not just to get somebody up there, but to have them stay up there for a while and then come back safely so that they could do it again. We weren't really in the business of sending people up for no goddamn reason just to kill them. Uh, we definitely did that with animals a few times, which is kind of sad, but it, it is what it is. It's already gone by. It's already happened. So, it, it, like I said, it is what it is. Um, the biggest aim, especially with Project Mercury, was really just to see if we could get men into space, and if we could how long we could keep them up there safely and then return them home and, you know, brush the dirt off our shoulder and, and continue going forward that way. So without any further ado, let's cover the very beginning of the United States' foray into outer space. Project Mercury on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, stick with me.
All right, guys, Project Mercury, the first human spaceflight program of the United States, ran from the beginning in 1958 all the way through 1963. Uh, the biggest reason we wanted to do Project Mercury was the goal to put a man into Earth orbit and then return him safely, hopefully, of course, before the Soviet Union did so, because like we talked about in the intro, like 99% of what we were doing in space was because we didn't want the Soviet Union to do that thing first. I say we, of course, uh, and I hate doing that, but I say we, of course, as I am obviously, if you listen to my voice, an American person. So I do take an amount of pride in in how much the United States has comp- accomplished when it comes to space-centered uh, things. But and this was the this was the the very very beginning. Now, of course, as we're talking about competition with the Soviet Union, the entire giant, as we'll, as we'll say many, 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 many times through the next three episodes, the space race, the space race began in earnest in 1957. As we build up our context for why the Mercury program and everything afterwards took place, in 1957, and this is for you trivia heads out there, uh, it's a pretty pretty basic trivia question, but if you are ever curious, in 1957, the very first artificial satellite was launched into orbit by the Soviet Union, a little satellite by the name of Sputnik. This came as a complete and utter bewilderment and shock to the American public, feeling like, oh my god, what is the Soviet Union doing? How can they have already done something like this? And in post World War II, you know the 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 Soviet Union and the United States were allies during World War II and had a very uh, uh, common goal, and that was to be basically the the two bookends of some sort of hammer action that squished the nation of Germany from each uh, Western and Eastern Front, uh, respectively. But after World War II ended, things started to get a little heated between these these two superpowers, these two emerging, you know, uh, worldwide superpowers, the United States being one and the Soviet Union being the other. At this point, the uh, the two nations have already fought one proxy war, that proxy war being the Korean War, where China and the uh, Soviet Union supported North Korea, while the United States and its allies supported South Korea. Um basically fighting their own little proxy war and their own little battle there for quote-unquote democracy or lack thereof, whatever it is, to the tune of, of, of very many deaths and a really very frigid relationship between the two Koreas till even this day, although that may be changing, interesting to say during the History Podcast, they may be changing sometime very soon. Either way, during the buildup of this, you know, this Cold War, which it would become, the United States and the Soviet Union both had to prove that they could fucking kill the shit out of each other if they so pleased. Uh, the United States used two atomic weapons during World War II at the very end on Japan, one on Hiroshima, one on Nagasaki, demonstrating the awesome and terrible power uh, that a nuclear blast could unleash. And just to, just to put it into context there, the the two bombs that were dropped in Japan were absolutely devastating and aren't even nearly as powerful as some of the shit that we these two nations have have come up with 
ever since. It's terrifying. That's why the Doomsday Clock exists. That's why total nuclear annihilation was such a thought at the front of people's minds, especially during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and sometimes even nowadays. We definitely... Definitely seems like the United States is really trying to poke the bear on a few people, uh, people that could very much enrich uranium and do things with it. But hey, that's neither here nor there. That's 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 straying off the path. And they always say, don't stray off the path too far. You'll just get into a bunch of bullshit. We are going to stick back with our original story in the context therein. The United States and the Soviet Union, basically, as they sort of want to play this weird arm wrestling match with one another, saying, well, I've got the more powerful weapons, I have the more powerful army, I have more tanks, I have more jets, da-da-da-da-da, back and forth. Um, this came to a uh, this came to a head and started to really go nuts when the Soviet Union sent Sputnik into orbit, um, showing that basically they had the missile technology now to launch something into orbital flight, meaning they figured out how to break out of the confines, the terrible, difficult-to-break confines of Earth's gravity and put something into space, meaning they could basically deliver anything anywhere in the world um, in theory. And this led to this crazy, this crazy missile race, basically, between the, the, the two nations where now we had to go nuts. And one of the byproducts of this missile race was the space race, the, the, the more of a more of a symbol or a symbolic race rather than a military-based race. Each you know, each nation basically wanted to show the other one that they could, you know, flip the bird to the the opponent saying, ha-ha, not only are we kicking ass and making sweet missiles that we could fucking destroy you with, we're also just sending dudes into space because we are so technologically advanced, be afraid of us. So, of course, in 1957, Sputnik goes into orbit the Russian satellite. Oh, shit, the Americans think. Not only can they deliver payloads to wherever they want to, they can also just basically straight up spy because they have a thing up there that we can't take down. It's just up there in space, and we can't do anything about it. This led to the creation of the National Aeronautic and Space Administration, also known as NASA, to expedite the the mission of U.S. space exploration, um, both with artificial satellites and with manned missions into space, especially when the word came out in 1961, early in 1961, uh, cosmonaut, and I, I love that name. I like how we call our guys astronauts. I think that's fucking cool too. But I also think the, the, the word cosmonaut is just really cool, really badass little word. The first cosmonaut, a Soviet astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, went into orbit in, in April of 1961. So not only did the Soviet Union beat the United States with artificial artificial excuse me satellites into orbit, they also beat the United States with putting a guy into space. Fortunately, during Project Mercury would pretty much be the only time that the United States would basically be uh, playing from behind, so to speak, playing with a deficit against the Soviet Union as they developed their program. So how did the United States develop their program? What was it all about? What did they go about doing to make it so that they could catch up, so to speak, with the Soviet Union during this time? Mercury, Project Mercury, named obviously for the uh, Roman god Mercury, and you'll see uh, with 
with NASA, they're very into um, the the Greek and Roman mythology in terms of their naming their stuff. Um, the solar system itself is named basically after um, Roman mythology, Mercury being the god of speed. It would be Hermes in, in the Greek tradition. Uh, Venus being the god of love, which would be Aphrodite in the Greek. Um, Mars, the god of war, or Ares in the Greek. Jupiter, uh, the the head god, or Zeus, if you are thinking of Greece. Uh, Saturn, I believe, is Hera. I'm not entirely certain about that one. I'm just getting these off the, the top of the head here. Um, you have... Uranus and Neptune, uh, Neptune, of course, being the equivalent of Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Uranus being actually the Greek version, not being a uh, the, the Romanized version of anything Greek, being uh, uh, the, the god of the sky, Uranus. And then, of course, Pluto, which, shout out to my dude Aaron, who just did an episode with his son about space. Sorry to say, my guy, I know that Pluto was a planet, when we were kids, it is not a planet. It is a dwarf planet. It is just too damn small to be considered an actual planet. I am sorry. It's got a wonky orbit, and it's basically just a gigantic ball of ice rather than a rocky-type planet like you might expect Earth, Mars, uh, uh, Venus, and, and Mercury to be. Pluto being the, the god of the underworld, also Hades, um, if you are into the Greek sort of thing anyhow geez i love space we're just going absolutely bonkers talking about nothing in particular let's get back on track and talk about project mercury so anyhow project mercury was created officially on october 7th of 1958 and then publicly announced in december of that same year by president dwight eisenhower uh, originally, it was called Project Astronaut, although President Eisenhower felt that that gave too much attention to the pilots itself, which the pilots both uh, are all agreed. And instead, the name Mercury was chosen, as we talked about from the classic mythology that uh, NASA seemed to absolutely be utterly and totally in love with. And at this point, the biggest issues with humans in space and this and that and the other thing was figuring out how you could actually get a live person into space without destroying them completely and utterly. Now, nothing really mattered when you were sending up a payload that didn't have anything really, you know, life-worthy up into it. Um, You can deliver satellites, you can deliver, you know, nuclear warheads at no big deal because the the exit velocity to get off of, of Earth and get through the gravity doesn't really matter when it's when it comes to something that's that's not alive that is something that just needs to be delivered somewhere else um the limit the the limit of space at this point was defined as the minimum altitude of 62 miles which is 100 kilometers up into space and of course the only way to reach this was by using rocket powered boosters this created some risks for the pilot as they saw including explosion which unfortunately we've seen a few times um, in history, most of us are are at the very least either contemporaries or very close thereafter of the Challenger explosion. There was also the Columbia disaster uh, a little bit later on in the uh, early 2000s. Um, but things like this do happen. Things explode. You know, it's it's rocket science, man. Right? That's why that's where the 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 term you know rocket science is. You know, it's just the most complicated thing ever. 
because you're just you're just blasting out as much force as possible trying to get something off the earth and and there are so many variables that can come into it that it's amazing that this shit ever even succeeded in the first place and I'm pretty sure that's where the thoughts were coming with these scientists saying how the hell are we going to do this with a person these risks like we said included explosion um extremely high g forces which we didn't know how well uh men would would be able to to take these G-forces, even though most of these guys were pilots beforehand and had experienced, you know, jet aircraft and G-forces there, especially when you're doing a uh, a pull in a certain direction, how much gravity the human body could take for how long they could take it. And, of course, the insane vibrations created on slamming a rocket at such speed through a super dense atmosphere to finally get off of the planet. And, of course, even if you succeed in all of these territories, you then have to deal with with coming back to Earth and going into that very same dense atmosphere, temperatures rising to more than 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 5,500 degrees Celsius for my European friends from air compression during re-entry. They also didn't know how weightlessness would affect the human body for any period of time. They also didn't know what would happen about radiation surrounding the Earth and micrometeoroid strikes being a thing that normally the Earth just absorbs because of the atmosphere being the way it is. They didn't know if they would just send somebody into space and a bunch of these little tiny rocks would just destroy somebody or that somebody would become completely and utterly irradiated, which would kill them slowly and painfully. Of course, these things turned out to be quite negligible. Um, Satellite experience, the unmanned satellite experience, uh, suggested that micrometeoroid strike risk was actually pretty much nil. Um, space is a gigantic, humongous place, and although these things could happen, the, the the chances that they were going to happen was pretty, pretty, pretty small. Um, experiments in the early 50s with simulated weightlessness, weightlessness, excuse me, high G-forces on humans, and of course the sad sending animals to the limit of space, all suggested potential problems could probably be overcome with what we already knew at the time. And then finally, re-entry was studied using the nuclear warheads of ballistic missiles, which demonstrated a blunt forward-facing heat shield could basically solve the problem of overheating. So perfect, we have a bunch of different sets of scientific data. Now we have to put it all together and put some dudes into space. Now how did the United States go about doing something like that? Well, first, they had to get some contractors, which eventually became um, the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation, becoming the prime contractor for the spacecraft, um, as well as North American Aviation, based in Los Angeles, helping to build the the Mercury capsules and the rockets that would send um, first nothing really into space and then actual dudes into space. So how... What, what did this spacecraft, after all the scientific nonsense that we've just been talking about, what did this spacecraft look like? What did the scientists come up with that would be a, an ideal sort of craft to carry a human being into orbit? What this little capsule ends, ends up being basically amounted to was a 10.8 foot long and 6.0 feet wide um, with launch escape system added being 25.9 feet overall, and that's just like the little uh, pointy thing on the top of it that you would see on launch. 
um, that basically could hold a human being just sitting in it, and that's all you could do. They were surrounded by uh, uh, 120 controls, 55 electrical switches, 30 fuses, and 35 mechanical levers. Um, a basically 3,000 pound monstrosity that you would just basically sit in, run around in space, and then hopefully make it back to Earth. Um, the very bottom end being um, being a, a a aluminum honeycomb covered multiple layers of fiberglass heat shield strapped to the bad boy. So you have a very familiar looking capsule if you've ever seen literally any any spacecraft the United States has ever used in your life. If you've ever seen Apollo 13, which we will talk about Apollo in the episode towards the end of the month. Um, these capsules are sort of triangular in shape. They're wide at the base, narrow at the top, sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, looking a lot like the rocket that launches them. So they get this thing going there. They have this thing designed. It looks like it's pretty well designed to get somebody into space. How does the astronaut deal with this? The astronaut laid in a sitting position with his back to the heat shield. So basically he, when you were launching, he would be facing up into the sky. And as you were going into Earth orbit, you would be basically going ass first into the Earth, which seems even more fucking scary than getting blasted into space in the first place because you're basically just falling backwards into the Earth. You can't really see what the fuck is going on and just hoping to God that your castle doesn't just explode and kill you. The astronaut had a seat, every single astronaut, there were seven of them, every single one of the Mercury astronauts had a fiberglass seat custom molded for them in particular, especially in their space-suited sort of body for maximum support. On their left side was a manual abort handle to activate the launch escape system if necessary. And during the time, they were supplemented um, their onboard environment control system with a pressure suit with its own oxygen supply. The cabin atmosphere of the entire capsule was also of pure oxygen, which had a very low pressure of 5.5 PSI, um, which is equivalent to about 24,000 feet up or about 5,000 feet from the summit of Mount Everest rather than one with the same composition of regular old air, which is nitrogen and oxygen at sea level, which would be a higher pressure. It made the it made the capsule lighter and also was easier con to control and also avoided the risk of decompression sickness, also known as the bends, which is very much a nitrogen-based thing. Of course, this would end up being, this is foreshadowing now, by the way, boys and girls, this would come to a disastrous end during the Apollo program, but we will get to that in a couple weeks. It's sad, it's tragic, but we will find our way to that. The astronauts would also wear electrodes on their chest to record their heart rhythm and rate. They had a cuff that would take their blood pressure and, a unfortunately, a rectal thermometer to record their temperature. This being replaced probably by astronaut popular demand by an oral thermometer on the very last Mercury flight. The astronaut would normally drink water and eat food pellets because space, that's what we do. So, as we are developing this capsule, we have the capsule now. We have it made of the metal alloy that we love. We have it made with the heat shield. We have it designed ergonomically for the astronaut to live in. We have the cabin figured out how to, to fill it with oxygen to make it lighter, how to pressurize the man's spacesuit, this, that, and the other thing. So we have all of this figured out. Now, how do we get that goddamn thing into the air and make it work? So... 
three different rockets were used during Mercury, one of which was the only one that actually carried men into space space. But the three rockets used during the Mercury testing program were Little Joe, which is just a little tiny sort of V2 looking rocket um, that if you were like a model rocket person, this the Little Joe would look a lot like what, you know, you would shoot, you know, off of your, your lawn or whatever. That was there to launch basically the um, pieces of Mercury, mostly just to test what it was like to launch the capsule itself with equivalent weight, this, that, and the other thing as they tested um, uh, different parts of how they were going to do the manned part. They didn't just jump straight into the manned uh, missions into suborbital and into space. They had to, of course, test the the the, the non-human portions before that, and the Little Joe rocket uh, was was designed to do so. After that, after they had gotten about 20 or so flights out of the way um, with the, the, the portions that were going to launch up into space, they figured, okay, now it's time to put a man into, into suborbital space, meaning they get up to a, a, an altitude of about that, you know, 60-ish or so miles up into the air, not quite into space, not quite into orbital, but pretty much into space and where these astronauts who did these suborbital flights are considered to have been the first, you know, Americans to have gone to space. And this was achieved on the Mercury Redstone rocket, a slightly smaller rocket than the one uh, used to launch the men into a full-blown orbit. The Mercury Redstone rocket would launch these men basically into a, a sort of parabolic pattern where you launch them up, they would go into sub-orbital uh, and kind of float there for a little bit and then come back down to Earth. A very short, sweet missions. The first man to ever go up into uh, space for the United States being Alan Shepard in May of 1961. Alan Shepard, of course, would stay with the space program and actually would rejoin the space program during the Apollo program and, of course, would be the only Mercury astronaut to walk on the moon. Um, Alan Shepard was the first person to do the suborbital orbital flight. Uh, Gus Grissom became the second man to do a suborbital flight because the second and fourth Mercury missions were just basically copies of the first and third, mostly just to see if we could actually redo them again, and then every subsequent Mercury flight thereafter was a copy of the third and fourth flight, usually just going longer and longer if you could. Now, as we talk about those two suborbital flights, you basically had uh, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom being the first two men to do this, and then John Glenn the, was the first American astronaut to actually orbit the Earth, and this happened in February of the next year in 1962. Um, and this was this was put into space on the third rocket, the Mercury Atlas rocket, one with which was powerful enough to send the entire payload into Earth orbit with a man inside the capsule. So now we've talked about basically how we got up there, but who were the men, and there were seven of them, who were these Mercury 7 that were chosen for this bold, weird, pioneering thing that was happening all of a sudden? Now, you think about how in human history how something is brand new and completely just foreign to everything and everybody, how you think about how that thing has to come you know, into existence. It comes into existence and there has to be some people crazy enough to fucking do it to where it becomes established. Just the same as when uh, when air, you know, travel 
um, and heavier-than-air craft from the Wright brothers forward came to be the very you know beginning of air flight, like we talked about during the Amelia Earhart episode, was wonky and crazy as can be, and usually you had to be an insane person to start doing that stuff. Eventually, over time, as techniques get better and better, um, and selection gets better and better, you can sort of, of become this sort of super elite type of, of thing where you get the very best of the best, everything is, is figured out, everybody knows how everything works. Well, now that we're shooting men up into space, you know, these so-called astronauts, what, how, do we, how are we going to do this? How do we pick the people who are going to do this? What kind of criteria do we choose these these men? And unfortunately, uh, uh, during the entirety of the 60s program to the moon, it was only men that were chosen. How do we pick these men from a gigantic pool? You know, uh, these days, if you're going to be an astronaut, you're basically uh, somebody who does serve in the military, military, excuse me, or has served in the military. Um, that hasn't changed a lot since the very beginning. But the 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 choosing of the astronauts these days is a very um, selective and and very grueling process. But at first, they didn't really know how to choose these people, how to do what they were going to do. How do they find people that were, you know, in possession of all the special things that they wanted in an astronaut? So prior to Project Mercury, there was no protocol for selecting astronauts. So they basically said anyone and everyone, literally this is what they said at first, anyone and everyone who would even be willing to volunteer for such a dangerous program, let us know what should we do. So people like thrill seekers, like rock climbers and acrobats and daredevils, have been allowed to apply, but eventually this idea was shot down by NASA later on, who basically understood that not only did they have to have a fucking crazy brave person do this, they had to have somebody who was crazy smart at the same time, somebody with professional training and education in flight engineering and in technology. By late 1958, NASA officials officially decided to move forward with test pilots, pilots um, in, in the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps who would all fly uh, jets, basically test pilots, as be the big chunk of the selection pool that they wanted to choose from. On President Eisenhower's insistence, this group was further narrowed down to active duty military test pilots, which set the number of candidates to 508 men, all of which, like I said, were Navy, Marine Corps, or Air Force pilots. These men had long military records, which would give NASA officials more background detail and information from which to base their decisions. Furthermore, these men were adept at flying the most advanced aircraft at the time, giving them the best qualifications for the new crazy position of astronaut. Of course, like we said, this selection did exclude women since there were no female military test pilots at the time. And interestingly enough, it also excluded civilian NASA X-15 pilot, a man by the name of Neil Armstrong, who you've probably all heard of, though he had been selected by the U.S. Air Force in 1958 for its man in space soonest program. He had served in the military and had since retired from the military and was a pilot, but at the time was not active duty military. He was technically civilian. Of course, we will hear more from Neil Armstrong later on. It was further stipulated that the candidates should be between 25 and 40, no taller than 5 foot 11 so they could fit in that tiny fucking capsule, 
and hopefully hold a college degree in a STEM subject, with STEM meaning science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Sometimes the end is also for medicine, but mathematics is the typical STEM M. The college degree requirement excluded uh, Chuck Yeager, a guy who had uh, broke the sound barrier for the very first time. Um, he eventually became a critic of the project because he, you know, didn't want, he was just mad <laughs> that they didn't pick him basically to be a sweet ass astronaut. Um, John Glenn, uh, the first man, like we said, to orbit the earth also didn't have a college degree, but had a lot of influential ties and friends, uh, and the selection committee accepted him. So obviously there were some amounts of, of tomfoolery and, you know, whatever it is still in play here. Although for the most part, they chose the best they could off of all these requirements. Other potential candidates declined because they didn't believe a, a manned spaceflight had any future beyond this random Project Mercury. From the original 508 that they had gotten, 110 were selected for an interview. And of those interviews, 32 were selected for further physical and mental testing. Their health, their vision their hearing, their eyesight, all of those things were examined together with a tolerance to noise, tolerance to vibration and G-force, personal isolation, and to heat, all tested. In a special chamber, they were tested to see if they could perform their tasks under confusing conditions, a very excellent way to test these guys. The candidates had to answer more than 500 questions about themselves and describe what they saw in different images. Jim Lovell, a man who would eventually uh, hang out in Gemini, and the Apollo programs originally did not pass the physical tests of the Mercury program. After all these tests, it was intended to narrow the group down to six astronauts, but in the end, they bumped it up to seven astronauts. These seven astronauts are um, Malcolm Scott Carpenter, uh, Leroy Gordon Cooper Jr., John Glenn Jr., Gus Grissom, or Virgil Gus Grissom, um, Walter uh, Marty Shearer Jr., Alan Shepard, and Donald Kent Slayton, the Mercury 7 men. Uh, a few of those being men that would become very famous for different reasons uh, during their lifetimes and thereafter. Anyhow, they select these seven men. And like I said, these suborbital flights, both of those happened with um, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. And then John Glenn becomes the first man um, uh, in the United States to actually orbit the Earth. So the Mercury program was uh, fairly successful. Obviously, it led to the other programs having their lifespan and, of course, eventually, spoiler alert, man, making it to the moon. There were seven different Mercury flights. Um, every call sign uh, had a different word. All ended with the number seven uh, due to the fact that there were seven astronauts in the Mercury program. They are as follows. Freedom 7, made by Shepard. Liberty Bell 7, made by Grissom. Friendship 7, the first orbital flight, made by Glenn. Aurora 7, by Carpenter. Sigma 7, by Shira. And Faith 7, by Cooper. The first two, Freedom 7 and Liberty Bell 7, were the suborbital flights, and they lasted a whopping 15 minutes and 22 seconds and 32, 37 seconds, respectively, while the Friendship 7 actually lasted 4 hours and 55 minutes, making three entire orbits around the Earth. Uh, Aurora 7, the fourth mission, was the exact same, four hours and 56 minutes, making three orbits around the Earth. And then Sigma 7, nine hours and 13 minutes in space for six orbits. And Faith 7, one day, 10 hours, 19 minutes, to do 22 
entire orbits around the Earth. It sounds extremely impressive, and it is extremely impressive, seeing as Jesus Christ, we just started flying not even barely 50 years ago, or we shot guys into space. Unfortunately, as I said at the top of the show, the Soviet Union was very far ahead of the United States in these uh, these sort of things. They had already launched Yuri Gagarin into orbit before the United States even launched a man into suborbital flight. By the end of the Vostok program, which is the, um, the, the Soviet equivalent basically to the Mercury program, they had a man set a record by orbiting the Earth 82 times, not 22 like the uh, Americans, 82 times, taking him nearly five days to do so. So the maximum record amount of time in space at that point was held by a Russian man who had orbited the Earth 82 times for nearly five days up there by himself just hanging out uh, at the edge of the Earth, basically. Overall, though, the project was delayed by 22 months, counting the beginning until the very first orbital mission. It had a dozen prime contractors, 75 major subcontractors, and about 7,200 third-tier subcontractors, excuse me, who together employed nearly 2 million people to work on the project. The cost estimated by NASA was around $392 million in 1969, which basically is about $1.8 billion in today's money, uh, $135 million for spacecraft, $82 million for operations, $49 million for tracking operations, and about $71 million for facilities. Even though the Mercury program was extremely successful, it did not win the race at this point against the Soviet Union, but it did give back national pride and prestige and was scientifically a successful precursor of later programs that we will talk about these next week, such as Gemini and Apollo. During the 1950s, some experts doubted actually that manned spaceflight was even possible. Still, when President John F. Kennedy was elected president, Many, including him, had doubts about the project, but he went forward with it anyway because those working for NASA convinced him that it was a good thing to do and that it was possible to do. It became a great public success. Afterwards, a majority of the American public supported manned spaceflight, and within a few weeks, Kennedy then announced a plan for a manned mission to land on the moon and return safely to Earth before the end of the decade. The six astronauts who flew were awarded medals, driven in parades, and two of them were invited to address a joint session of Congress. All of the men who ended up being part of the Mercury 7 ended up living long and wonderful lives after they all got done with the Mercury program, except for one man, poor Gus Grissom. And like I said, this is a, a foreshadowing for all you children out there listening to the show there will be something terrible that happens to Gus Grissom a little bit later on, but besides him, all the other men born in the 1920s lived up into the 1990s and early 2000s with John Glenn, the aforementioned John Glenn, living all the way until 2016. He passed away just very recently. Um, so uh, a, a lot of good things happened from the Mercury program, both with for, for the astronauts and with the program itself. It uh, went greatly to improving you know, public opinion on spaceflight. And in my opinion, I sort of wish that this sort of this sort of thing was still happening these days with the just wonder and awe of it all. But as things turn out, 
you know, the more something is done, just like we were saying, when when this was new, this was pioneering, this was insanity. And when it was successful, people would just lose their fucking shit. It was just amazing, just all this nonsense. And it led to people wanting to become scientists and people wanting to study physics and chemistry and, and space and astronomy and everything. And it, it, it was crazy that this was the sort of thing that could lead to, you know, some sort of celebrity um, and some sort of, you know, pop culture phenomenon. And that's because it was new. As we've gone through time, we've definitely gotten a million times better at space travel. Um, We've put countless, countless satellites into orbit for all things. You are listening to my show because of satellites, because of the ability to download data across the world onto your fucking phone that is more powerful than any computer that ever did anything that these men used. And it's just become ho-hum. That's the whole thing. It's just become regular. We've launched satellites that have left the solar system. They are out in interstellar space. The Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 probes. We've sent we've sent satellites, those Voyager ones included, and others that have mapped basically every planet in the solar system, have looked at these planets close up, have looked at their moons. Just recently, we were able to finally get an actual look at the planet Pluto for the first time ever. Excuse me, Aaron Hogue, dwarf planet Pluto. I know, dude. I know. Y'all heard about Pluto. That That's messed up. But it's it's just amazing the kind of stuff that we've been able to perform with the stuff that we learned during uh, the Mercury missions and beyond. Sometimes I wish that we would get that fervor back for space travel because, honestly, the, the future for mankind is in space, not on this planet. Maybe with people trying to launch stuff to Mars, people in particular to Mars that may start to um, rev the engines of curiosity again, we can only hope. But Mercury was the first program that helped American men get up into space and is the precursor to all of the space programs or anything that we've ever done in the United States when it comes to putting people or not people into the inky black hue of outer space. And now, your fact of the week. Since we're doing a space theme month, we might as well do a bunch of space facts every week. The first of which is that our solar system, 99% of the solar system's mass is the sun. You think fucking Jupiter and Saturn are big, and they are. They can fit very many of our own planet inside of them. And you can fit a ton of those planets inside of the sun mass-wise. The sun makes up 99% of the mass in the solar system. Pretty goddamn huge. That ball of fire keeping us all alive to listen to our favorite podcasts. And so it goes. We have reached the end of this particular episode in space month space month 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 on the knowledge on the couch podcast guys thank you so much for listening i have been kyle steinhauser you can find me on twitter at that very same name you can find the show's twitter at the couch pod you can find us on facebook search knowledge from the couch podcast you will find us there you can find the show anywhere podcasts can be found including apple podcast stitcher 
uh, Pocket Casts, Overcast, TuneIn, Google Play, and now on Radio Public. Every place that you can find stuff that has to do with podcasts, you may find this show. I have now a very extensive back catalog of episodes that you can listen to about all kinds of historical fun stuff. Um, pretty much anything and everything somebody would be interested in, you can find it on the show. Um, you can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com, if you like living in 1995 and having dial-up internet. You can certainly do that as well. Don't have much else to tell you at this point. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was very fun for me to record. I love space. I am such a goddamn nerd. I love sci-fi. I love Star Trek and Star Wars and all that kind of shit. Um, if you know me personally, you know that that is the case. And my love of that would only be possible because of the the insanity of, of NASA and the American space program basically bringing the love and wonderment of space to my father, who then passed it down to his son. That person, of course, being yours truly. Guys, until next week, where we talk about the Gemini program of the United States' space program during the 1960s. Until then, guys, live long and prosper. <laughs>